You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Well, if I don't describe what's coming, who will? Hi, I'm PJ Manny. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska, and this is episode 54 Cyberpunk World Building. <laughs> Listeners, we are delighted tonight to today, whenever we're you happen to be listening to us, uh, to welcome PJ Manny to the podcast. PJ, please introduce yourself and tell us about your work. I'm a fiction and nonfiction writer, futurist, and consultant to organizations who want to know what's coming. And I want you to know what's coming because oh boy, is it going to get interesting. That includes empathy creation, storytelling, what I call the new mythos, so new ways of telling stories, especially for science fiction and fantasy writers, uh, and in general, the future of humanity. I also wrote for television, including Xena Warrior Princess, Hercules Legendary Journeys, and a bunch of pilots sold to studios. Listeners, if you could have seen Cass's face right there when she said Xena. I did not Zena. know you'd written for Xena. <laughs> Xena was a oh, girl, we can formative, talk. formative <laughs> mythos on young Cass. Um, I have zero surprise upon learning this. Oh my gosh. I took Taekwondo because I wanted to learn martial arts like Xena for a very short period of time. I was not very good at <laughs> So that's delightful. And... I, I got to say, when you say, I want you to know the future and what's coming, it sounds initially like a threat. <laughs> but then all those things you said afterwards sounded much nicer, you know, empathy building and things like that. So I think that's probably a great way to get into our topic, which is beginning with what what is cyberpunk? How do we define that? What makes a world cyberpunk? And what components are important for that? Cyberpunk always seems like a threat of the future. Like, <laughs> look out. <laughs> Or this is going to happen. It's coming. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. Well, and, and part of that threat is that it's near term, right? It's it's something that seems to be just over the horizon, just in the next coming years. Um, it, it also involves dystopias, which is why there's a threat. And what Bruce Sterling called low life and high tech, which is this idea that you have people who are living either on the fringes or in working class, but working class in a very technical way, situations involved with high tech, but they're alienated, disassociated, and the world is run usually, usually by organized crime and corporations, which can often be the same thing. Uh, So it's, I like to sum it up. It's like what script kiddies do in computer worlds when they don't understand how their world works. Oh, there's also noir and mystery uh, and thriller aspects to cyberpunk. And actually, some people call it a subgenre, and this is where my film school education comes in. It's more style and theme than it is a genre. Uh, much like film noir, that's not a genre. It's something that's put on top of, it's a feeling, it's an attitude, it's, it's a milieu that's put on top of a story sort of more an aesthetic than something that defines 
what the beats of the story are. It's it's the flavor given to it. Correct. Right. While, while thriller and mystery are definitely part of cyberpunk, it could be any kind of thriller and mystery. You know, it, you could write Agatha Christie and take those story points and make it cyberpunk if you added computers and et cetera. I mean, in a very real way, that's what CSI is, because it is like it is this totally like fake future tech sort of thing of like, oh, we, you know, we're able to determine all this information that like when in reality would be like, oh, this was backed up in the lab for eight months and then we forgot and somebody left. In the oh, right, right. Up. Eight months, eight years, <laughs> eight years to figure that stuff out. Exactly. <laughs> and then we misplaced the sample and whoops. Right. <laughs> Wait, are you are you telling me that if I just yell enhance at my computer screen, it won't reveal hidden details from 5,000 yards away? That won't work? I can't do that? Since there are all these different, like, subgenres that, that have the punk suffix in it, I heard somebody once refer to something called now punk, and I'm like, what is that? And then I realized that... She, Things like CSI or 24 are exactly that, that it pretends to be now, but it's the technology does not exist that they show in, in things like that. And because it is more cyberpunk, the idea of like, oh, yeah, zoom and enhance. That's just a thing we can do. Like, like <laughs> uh, on a 1994 Mac, we can do that. <laughs> I do like some of the new punk ideas, though, like solar punk and hope punk and things like that, where, you know, they're taking very specific attitudes or potential technologies and really running with that, too. Would you say that cyberpunk has like an ethos driving it, some sort of of underpinning outlook or message that unites the, the sort of flavor that it has? I, I think cyberpunk has... Well, and it's funny because, you know, my works get thrown into this idea of cyberpunk. I mean, we're having this conversation, assuming my works are cyberpunk, and I actually go against some of these. So I'm going to say what the genre does, and then I'm, then at some point we should discuss what I've pushed against. There's an ethos of, again, we're, if there's a class structure in cyberpunk and usually the people who are the protagonists are in a lower class doing the grunt work of technology and they're brought into a, a situation usually a legal situation not of their making where they thought they could get away with something or they thought they could participate a little bit and make some money whatever it is they're 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 playing with the edges of criminality or they're dragged into it, but there's a, a feeling where they're all just pawns. And that attitude, I think, is really interesting because even in things like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is Blade Runner, the cop is a pawn. You know, here he is, he's, and that's a, cl a classic noir trope of of a cop uh, not understanding the full story, being thrown in and, and being a pawn in a much bigger story. While those that definitely applies in my case, I wanted to play with the ideas of actual power. I wanted to get up close and personal with power. And that's one of the things that cyberpunk backs away from. Because as a pawn, you're not supposed to actually understand what's going on. You're, you're tossed hither, thither, and yon by forces bigger than you and out of your control. And I wanted to get to the seat of power because for me right now in our time, understanding how power works and not 
allying oneself with the idea that you can't grapple with power is actually a huge mistake. And I think the original cyberpunk writers, while on one hand bowing to the disaffected among us and maybe being disaffected themselves, I think have done a great disservice to readers to understand, well, how does the world work? They never really explain how their worlds work. Yeah, I in that which I'm familiar with, it, it always seems like like the best your protagonist can hope to do in any sort of situation is maybe throw a shoe into the gears of the machinery and screw it up for a little bit and then hope to have something a bit better once the shoe is, is pulled out. And that's about all that they can really hope to achieve. You know, it's never it's never a long term like we've solved we've solved the dystopia everybody everything is going to be great now or anything like that it is always just like maybe we made things marginally better for a few minutes that's exactly <laughs> right yeah exactly right and 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 there's there's that disaffected dystopic ending which again and this goes back to kind of the new mythos stuff that i deal with i don't think really it ends up serving readers or society in a period when we're actually dealing with it in reality you know, dystopias are great when everything's wonderful and we get to look at these things as what not to do, futures we hope don't happen, cautionary tales. But when we're actually dealing with oligarchy and autocratic systems and surveillance and all the issues that cyberpunk has been dealing with, I want to know how to fix it. And I want to read stories, I want to write stories about how to fix it. And this goes along with things like Hope Punk and Solar Punk and all the other punks, which are now trying to look at what's broken, be it climate, whatever it is, and society, and try to find ways to fix it. And that that's part of what, when I talk about the new mythos, what we're trying to do. We're looking at the story structures, we're looking at the tropes, we're looking at the act structures, the hero's journeys, we're looking at all the things that actually we've been told are what a good story is, but in fact are what are keeping us stuck in many ways in our social systems. I always love looking at how trends like that ebb and flow within genres and across genres over time. And I think there's, you're, you're exactly right, there's definitely a reason that we saw a lot of this style of story, whether it is the cyberpunk that has that disaffected quality or or the grim dark and fantasy rising up in the 1990s is when it really like I feel like exploded it existed before that certainly but in the 90s weren't a perfect time but compared to the heavy awareness we all have now I think of climate change that wasn't as prevalent in the 90s and the fact that we've been through two major recessions in 12 years which didn't happen in the 90s I think people are are tired of those grimmer versions of reality. They're like, you know, I don't need fiction about that when we're kind of living it. Give me solutions. Help me think of ways out of this mess that we're in. I don't need to be a cautionary tale. I'm in one. Right, exactly. <laughs> Let me just set this up for a second because you actually hit on something that's really important that my books directly deal with that cyberpunk doesn't. So what cyberpunk does is it takes, it's, it's kind of like you've got the world in aspic, right? You've, you've, it's, it often feels like it's a concept of a world set apart from the notion of actual reality. But what happens in history is that, especially in American history, every 50 years we go through a period of political violence. And you can mark this starting from the American Revolution through American history. And 
the last one was the 1960s, and now we have today. And right in the middle of that was the 90s. So that was like the nadir of political violence in, in America. There was very little. Things were really great. And so you have that wonderful um, opposite sine curve running where stories could get really dark when things are great. But I mean, think back actually to things like, um, well, the Great Depression in the movie business is a perfect example. That was the period of the screwball comedy and the movie musical. The white telephone movies. Right, the white telephone movies, exactly. You know, and, and every woman in a gorgeous white glimmery, you know, bias cut gown and, you know, <laughs> fabulous. It's it's this notion that, you know, we could we needed escapes or we needed stories. And we had a lot of these in the 30s, too, where they said how bad things were, but they gave us a way out. The Frank Capra movie, where it was like Mr. Smith goes to Washington and he shakes up all that horrible corruption and he makes things better. You do have this opposite sine wave through history of how things are actually going with the stories we need to tell ourselves so that we can get out of that bad jam. I think thinking of those historical tweaks is is a good seg into our next point, which is about playing out the domino changes. One of the fun things in world building, and especially when you're talking about alternate futures, is if I change this one thing, or if I add this one technology, or if I give the computer the ability to enhance the one little change, what does that then do? And how can we think about that in terms of tech or culture or social norms when it comes to our cyberpunk and other alternate future uh, stories and worlds? Well, it's interesting because um, traditionally techno thrillers, which is what you could say revolution, the first book was, take a single technology that's world changing and base all and that's the MacGuffin right and that's the thing that everybody's running after and often it doesn't actually do the things it's potentially could do um instead I turned that on its head and I made it happen and all the things that went with it so in the world building I'm dealing with is it's all near term so it's a world you're comfortable with and you recognize it but this computer technology changes everything. And in this case, it's brain-computer interfaces and eventually artificial human-like intelligence. So uploading happens and we take personalities and we put them into a computer program. And we also have robotics and we are able to download these, these personalities into either robots or another point in the stories brain dead humans, humans who, you know, we're, we're, we put brain computer interfaces in them and the personality of the upload is now downloaded and they're hooked up to the internet. So it's this, a constant feed of both the biological and the computer. And that totally changes who we are as humans. That's the big change. So that's the fun that I get to have with the domino effect of what happens when through these three books, starting with, you know, a brain-computer interface was designed for Alzheimer's. You know, make memories. Can't make memories? This thing can make memories. To a much larger way of looking at what is human. And it took three books. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that happens sometimes. Yeah, that happens. (laughs) That becomes the, the driver 
of the stories is it's not what happens with this neat little brain computer interface technology and, and the nano medicine and all the other things that he invents and that he ends up using on himself. It becomes, well, what is the nature of humanity? Who is human? When there are multiple copies of him and each one's having different experiences and, and you know, what does that mean for society when the good guys and the bad guys have it? Totally changes the nature of what society is. I'm realizing that a lot of things, I think, fall under that category of techno thriller that I'm familiar with. D- don't play that out. And, and maybe that's sort of the difference between different modes within this genre or aesthetic. Because I'm thinking about things like Jurassic Park. Right. At least the original book. There's this amazing genetic discovery but by the end of the book, they close that off. They're like, we're not going to do any more of this. Now with the movies, they decided we needed to make 8,000 sequels. So it's exploring some interesting channels now. Or I read these books that, I mean, they're always shelved with mystery. They're never shelved with science fiction or fantasy. But they're the Pendergast mysteries by Douglas Preston, Lincoln Child. And they are mostly mystery thrillers. But they always have some technological aspect to them. It's often genetic in base, or it's it's some technology that you know we don't want the bad guys to get a hold of. And once again, usually the resolution of the mystery means, congrats, we didn't, uh, we we kept it from getting into the bad guys' hands. We're gonna make sure it never falls into the wrong hands by destroying this technology. And that works for you know sort of serialized books of that nature, but it does mean they're not exploring the potential <laughs> play out in the world. Well, and, and this is my big issue in general with reversion to the status quo storytelling, especially if you're saying you're writing science fiction or anything about technology. Technology changes us. We create the technology and then we respond by changing to adapt to it. And because technology is morally neutral, you have swords, you have plowshares. They're both metal sticks that are sharp. <laughs> and <laughs> you get to decide what you do with them. And because we're constantly making those decisions through history, what we do with these technologies, we change and society changes to adapt to them. The fact that, you know, it's nice and neat and it's a very simple form of storytelling. And I look, I'm a huge um, Preston and Childs fan. I'm, I'm a fan of all, you know, Michael Crichton. I, I'm a fan of all these guys. But that's not what I want to talk about. And so I had to change fundamentally certain tropes within this style of science fiction. And I also did it on purpose for another reason. Um, Well, beyond the new mythos, I wanted to slow walk people from something they were comfortable with, which was these technological thrillers, to harder science fiction. Because so many people I meet say, well, I can't read science fiction. I'm not smart enough. Or, oh, I didn't, I, I wouldn't like science fiction. It's just too technical. Um, and I had so many friends over the years who were just like, you know, I like the movies, but the books, hmm. And I thought, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> you Trojan horsed them into sci-fi. <laughs> I, I dragged them, I dragged them into sci-fi. And the number of people, and, and you know, the ones that thrilled me the most are, you know, I was a PTA mom. And I have this you know, bevy of PTA mom friends. And they're all like, well, I don't read science fiction. And so many of them are like, I love these books. And, you know, I feel like that is 
my my the ultimate compliment because people who have never read science fiction before assumed they would never like it thought it was out of their league didn't know you know what they weren't those kind of people suddenly realize this is as relevant for them as anything and that's one of the many reasons why i i played around a lot with the structure the genre expectations the style expectations etc yeah i find the the ones that are the most interesting are the ones that expand the the big concept of whatever that next piece of tech is to the larger world and what that means like i mean jurassic park is fun but it is just like you have this incredible world-changing technology and you're just like i just want to make some dinosaurs and you could have done so much more but no you just wanted because really you just wanted to make a story about dinosaurs and you didn't care what else that meant the technology could do. And Crichton, <laughs> Crichton is a very specific kind of writer in that for him, all technology is bad. He is a technophobe and he's a, he's a self-acknowledged technophobe. Like he loves the research of it, but it's all bad. And what I'm saying is that technology isn't bad. Bad people will do bad things with it. Good people will do good things with it. <laughs> and it's what we do with it that matters. And the larger ethical questions aren't just, ooh, new technology must be bad, must stop, must never happen again. It, it, it's already out of the box. That's how technology works. And so while, again, he told really great, fun stories, to me, they weren't representative of anything that I recognized in terms of, of reality. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the things that soured me more and more on Black Mirror as it kept going was that it was just this sort of like, here's these nuke technologies and it's going to be bad. Like, and it just kept going and that like, no matter what, people always just made what's like the worst choice I can make with this technology. Oh, we have a thing that can copy the human brain. Well, good. We'll use it to make a doll of this pop star and make a complete copy of her brain in the doll and then just just block the rest the parts of it that we don't need because that's far more efficient than just making a high-tech doll <laughs> <laughs> that's literally what happens Chris. in one episode Chris. exactly that's right well, I was going to say, I instead of the reversal of the status quo, I do find those sorts of like, oops, we opened Pandora's box kinds of stories so much more interesting, where it's like, well, this is out and there's nothing we can do. So it, it's far more interesting to then like, since there's nothing we can do to keep this out of the hands of bad people, what's the best, what's the best yeah. life we can make from now on? And historically, we don't choose to just not use technology. And PJ, like you were saying, it might get used for bad, it might get used for good, but we don't tend to just destroy it so that no one gets it. I mean, if you look at the last hundred years and nuclear technology, Correct. You, know, like, you know, like we are trying to decide not to use it for weapons because we saw how terrible that was, but there are still other things that we want nuclear technology to be able to do. And, and can we use it as a safe source of power and can it lead us to other discoveries that that might be good and bountiful and nuclear medicine you yeah, know like... Th this is this is exactly this is exactly my point the questions become how do we as a society make these decisions if we don't know their decisions to be made we're not going to make them and that to me is where the power of storytelling comes in where you get to tell a story and create empathy for characters who are going through something that you can't even imagine, but now you can because you've got a story. <laughs> and how, what choices would you make? And 
And part of, you know, one of the things I, I, I like about cyberpunk is that the heroes aren't necessarily straight up heroic, right? They're complex characters, and in many ways they can be seen as anti-heroes. And I really like that part. Um, I think that's where it's more relatable. If you have a hero who's like, this is how it is, this is how it, it should be, I know all the right answers, with these unbelievably hard questions, complex questions about the nature of what is a just society? What does it mean to be human? There are no easy answers to these things. I wanna see them really grappling with it. I wanna see them making mistakes because that's what we all do. And I'm okay when people are looking at, at my heroes and going, why are you doing that? Because that actually says to me, hey, you're actually thinking about this now. You're, you're making value judgments and this is good. In fact, my hero makes a lot of mistakes Probably the smartest person in the entire book is is his friend Ruth, who's throughout through the entire series. I mean, she really is the heart and soul and conscience of of the books. And I wanted her there because I didn't want the hero to have all the answers. He made this stuff. He got everybody into hot water. He clearly doesn't have all the answers. And I wanted to see that that grappling with coming up with what's the right thing to do. I really love that in a hero, somebody who's like, I do not know what the right thing is, but I guess this situation is in my hands now, so <laughs> I'm going to make a choice. Exactly. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. <laughs> so thinking about those those changes that, that do occur, what are some of the like cultural, political, social things you have found spiraling out of, of your your twists and turns? Well, I deal with history very profoundly in my works. Again, something that cyberpunk does not do. Cyberpunk are these kind of discrete stories in this kind of perfect little built world. And then they, you know, everything starts to roll. Mine assumes the entire breadth of world and, hum and human and American history up until this point, which is in the near future, where we have this alternative future history. And because of this, that is one of the reasons why I deal with politics and power, because I want to see how things, how power dynamics work in our future world. So for instance, the oligarchy is still the oligarchy. Oligarchy is, is, is growing around the world and, and authoritarianism is growing around the world. So what happens if it doesn't stop? And I'm making assumptions in my future history about what happens when certain variables come at come into play but basically the oligarchs and the authoritarians haven't stopped and that's saying to my reader hey guys if we don't deal with this now <laughs> guess what's going to happen <laughs> um so so taking those as my assumptions that's where I, I spin out my world building. Uh, those, are, those are the assumptions, and then I'm building consistency. And of course, one of the big challenges there, especially when you're building a future history, but building it within the near future, that just the process of time marching on will quickly make your potential near history be something that doesn't quite fit anymore. Like, I think about how so much of, like, the sci-fi of like 
the 60s and 70s were like set in the future year of 1999 (laughs) (laughs) oh unknowable time (laughs) and and had like you know moon colonies and and you know which in say 1971 the idea of like well we've gone to the moon a couple times that's just going to keep expanding seemed like a reasonable hypothesis of what was happening and where it might go and it turned out instead in 1999 we were all sitting around hoping our computers didn't explode when the year changed (laughs) over to 2000 (laughs) i mean similarly one, one of the one of the classics of cyberpunk is snow crash which was written in 1988 and even though it doesn't explicitly say the year, like it's easy to figure out by context that it takes place in 1998 and <laughs> has, you know, spiraled all these like crazy, like world shattering differences within the 10 year span, which is kind of mind boggling that, you know, he even considered that that was a realistic proposal of what might happen in the next 10 years but also especially since how calm the 90s were compared to (laughs) compared to what his future 90s looked like and but that it seemed like a reasonable supposition of like this is how it's gonna go and that i think is often the big challenge with this genre i had a friend a while back when i was you know in the mode of you know working with various uh critique groups who was writing something that was near future and she started to get really worried like if i don't get a publishing deal soon this book i've written is pointless and i need to start over because because it was so such a snapshot in time this is a huge issue for everybody writing near term i mean stevenson says he doesn't want to do it anymore i mean lots of doctoros like i don't know why i do this uh you know every we we're all complaining about it on one hand on the other hand, I actually really, for all my complaining about it, I actually really enjoy it because it does allow me to deal with things where I get to wave my hands wildly in the air and say, hey, everybody, pay attention, in a way that if I'm writing space opera, it just isn't the same. Although I will say The Expanse did a really great job with that, um, where you got to look in The Expanse and go, Oh wait! I recognize these these political issues. I recognize you know the the things that they're they're fighting about. And oh my goodness, we've replicated all the bullshit. We you know we need need to get rid of now. Just out on other planets. And so I think they did a really good job with that. But I I do want people to read these books and then look out the window <laughs> and and think. Well, hold on a second. Um, in many ways, I mean, they're still driving cars. They're still, you know, they, there's a normalcy in my stories. And yet, such huge changes, because that's actually how it works. You know, one of the things I think is so fascinating is when we look at um, science fiction and we assume the Jetsons, right? We assume that even just X number of years in the future, everything's going to look different. Every vehicle will be different. Every building will be different. We won't even use roads. There aren't roads where we're, you know, where we're going. Um, and that's just not how, how humanity works. We're, we're sedimentary. We build upon existing things. You go to Rome now. There's still a Colosseum. We don't use it as a Colosseum, but it's still there. 
And I like that idea of multiple layers of technology all coexisting at the same time because that's actually how it works. That makes me think of a really interesting craft question. We talk a lot on this podcast about the on-ramp for the reader. And when you're dealing with something that is second world fantasy or a space opera, there are often long and steep on-ramps to get the reader up to speed with what the culture is, what this world is, how it's different from the world we live in now. In that normalcy that you've got, how do you then give the reader the clues as to what is different and what has changed in those intervening years between the present and however far in the future you're working? And how do you tell them what's new to them versus what's new and unusual to the characters? Because those might not be the same things. Um, you just show them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I know it sounds dumb, but, um, I I think that you as, as a writer have to have a real clear sense of where you are, what is your world, what's going on there. Um, and then you play up the differences. You know, if, if I'm again with near term writing, there's some things that I can assume my reader knows they know what a white house the white house is but they don't know what the white house is when everything is done through holograms so you don't go and visit the white house either you know my character either goes by a robot or goes via hologram to visit whoever the president of the united states is at the time we might have a better sense of that after the last year of zooming everywhere. That might be. <laughs> That's very true. But, but you know, I, I've been dealing with virtual worlds through these these books the whole time uh, because I had these digital characters and they were creating their own digital worlds. And those digital worlds, uh, especially their virtual worlds, where they choose to interact, are based on their own experiences and their own memories. Um, I've... I've uh, my protagonist uh, in conscience wakes up and he realizes somebody's actually built a virtual world that's a memory of his. And he's experiencing this. And he's like, wait, I, I know where I am, I, you know, but it's not quite right. So I, I think in answer to your question, when it feels right, you know, how, what's, what's normal versus what what am I showing them that they need to see? What do they need to see? What do they need to experience? Um, there are a number of technologies, for instance, in Conscience. Um, one of the 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 points is it's about, a lot of it's about propaganda and brainwashing. And so if people aren't trusting their media, what do you do? Well, in the case of Conscience, you create a new religion and you convince everybody to get... Um, uh, corneal implants because they're going to be able to see everything like they won't have to have to think about anything but you're now giving them they, they can't see anything but what you're feeding them and some of it's fantastic and some of it isn't and it's lies and it's deceit and it's causing war and it you know it's a whole new way of, of looking at how we, we build war um, so on one hand I've got it I've got a, a character who is looking at a world and she's built this fantasy world for herself because her own world life is horrible. And on the other hand, I have another character who's out there, you know, shooting everybody up because it's like a, it's like a video game to him. He thinks he sees the enemy at every turn 
and all he's doing is becoming is, is sowing chaos. It's all they want him to do is just go out there and sow chaos. It's the same technology. And these people are recognizable to you and me. Their lives are recognizable. It's just they get this this new thing, this new technology, and it makes them behave not in ways that are unusual to us. People want to feel lifted out and escape from, from their horrible lives, or they want to, they're so afraid, they're so filled with fear that they act out violently. This is all recognizable behavior. It's just new technology that's leading them there. One of the things that strikes me about cyberpunk as a concept is the way like one key aspect of the technology that it tends to show is how the idea of body modification and technology biological interface still remains just around the corner even though like you know this first was coming up in the 80s and 90s like it's going to be within you know the next 20 30 years and here we are 20 30 years later and we're we're no we're we're still nowhere near that but the way technology advanced in some ways completely different but sort of the same elements still are in play i disagree with you i disagree with you completely and this is because i actually deal with the technology so we have neural links for prosthetics so luke skywalker's hand is coming is basically exists we have brain computer interfaces for uh, depression, deep brain stimulation, for cochlear implants. We have the beginning of, of uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink. And here's the really frightening part for me for Neuralink. So all my books are based on real technology. All of this was R&D in the early 2000s through about 2010, where scientists at places like USC and NYU were developing brain-computer interface technologies. And that's what I base my books on. This is all real research and development. This is not made oh, up. Oh, I, I believe that. I actually took the, yeah. real, the real stuff. So did Elon Musk. Now, at first I thought Neuralink was, well, we all read the same papers at the same time, and he's really just applying basically older brain-computer interface technology to the pigs that he just showed. Then I realized he didn't just read the papers because he had done a PR presentation and I was listening to it and I thought, God, that sounds really familiar. And I realized he was doing part of the pitch from my own book. <laughs> and, and this is part of a classic feedback loop of science fiction and technology right. that you know yeah. it will continue forever. So when I see what's actually being done with brain computer interfaces, I can tell you that the only reason they're not more ubiquitous is because people are, thank God, taking their time because of the ethics involved. Anyone who's had, people have had brain, uh, internal brain computer interfaces that beyond cochlear implants or retinal implants or or, uh, deep brain stimulation, have them removed because no one wants to keep them in there. There are issues, there are biological issues of long-term brain-computer interfaces, but also there are ethical issues. There's a whole bunch of uh, epilepsy patients who had stimulators put in their brains to eliminate their seizures. 
and but it also did other things to their minds. And when they were removed, they were devastated because they liked who they were on those brain-computer interfaces. So this stuff is actually happening. And that's the part that gets me crazy when people are like, oh, it's all still science fiction. No, it's not. And this is why we have to start talking about this stuff because we're already not just at the, at the forefront of it, we're in it. And, you know, Musk is already talking about putting his neural link, his, you know, and it's not the neural mesh, which he originally talked about. It's, you know, it's literally right out of my book. It's so freaky. It actually disturbs me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, these little discs, like, like a a cochlear implant disc, he's, he's getting ready for human implantation. And the problem with guys like him is that he says the scary stuff out loud. And he's not kidding when he says, you know, I'm doing this because we have to merge with the machines because we have to be smarter than the machines. We have to control the machines. The only way to control the machines is to merge with the machines. I mean, this is what he's thinking. (laughs) And that's the point where I want to ask him, like, have you read a book? (laughs) Well, I want to say, I I want to tell him, you've read my books clearly, Elon. Please, did you get nothing out of the technology? (laughs) I I guess the the, the part that still seems in that still remains in the future for me is that more sort of casual adoption of it. Like, yeah, where we are with, say, prosthetic limbs is amazing compared to 30 years ago. But we're still, I think, far from the point where anybody would be like, you know what, I'm just going to replace my arm with a cyber arm because that's going to be better. We still thank, thankfully have bioethics. I yeah. mean, that's really yeah. what it comes down that's to. That's what it comes we down don't to. Have, yeah, we don't have scientists and, and, and uh, doctors who are going to say, oh yeah, here, you know, I've got my weekend workshop. <laughs> 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 let me let me screw that arm on for you. Um, you know, we, we, we don't have, it's not Lasix, you know, for, yeah. for yeah. prosthetics yet. Um, but that's not saying it is impossible if the demand is there. Right. And that's right. the thing about technology I, you know, I look at something like drug uh, off-label usage, you know, Botox, perfect example. Botox was used specifically for eyes. It was used for people who had walleye, whose eye, you know, muscles were, were uneven. It was to paralyze the strong muscle, strengthen the weak muscle. That's what Botox was for. Huh. I did not know that, but it makes sense. Yeah. It was invented. Botulism as an injectable was invented for eye surgery. Huh. And it was the off-label usage of it. Well, hold on. If it can, if it can paralyze muscles exactly where it's injected, well, maybe if I paralyze the, the muscles around my face, <laughs> you know. And I'm trying to imagine who was the, the person who, who looked at the needle and went, oh, I'm just going to try this. Let's try it. Let's see, what, let's see what happens. Well, now it's sort, of, it's sort of looped full circle because now they use it for a different medical purpose, too. It's used for migraine treatment. That's correct. Now, I haven't, I haven't tried that yet. But it's sort of in the back of my mind, like maybe someday if my migraines get worse again, I might. I would absolutely trade my eyes for bionic eyes if that was an option because my vision is so bad. Current LASIK surgery can't fix it. That's that's how nearsighted I am. But if someone said, well, we'll pop those out and pop some fresh ones in that are, you know, have fancy extra features, I'd be like, sure, sign me up for that See, one. See, that's fascinating because for me, I that's a terrifying concept and maybe it's 
partly because I've seen too many episodes of Black Mirror where because people have like their various eye things, it can be like then (laughs) then like the horrors that come with that of like, oh, we can just block this person from your vision completely. And what happens because like you've been blocked, then that means that, you know, horrors ensue because you you cannot literally cannot trust what you see. (laughs) I don't know. But then again, there are also some people I would like to literally just eliminate from <laughs> my awareness in that way. Well, here's here's another uh, another use case that maybe will, will help understand help you get where I'm coming from. So my biggest fear about brain computer interfaces is that if we can't handle hackers in normal Internet computer usage, if we are dealing with the colonial pipeline and all of our data being stolen and everything compromised left, right, and center because nobody cares to pay for security, right? That's really what it comes down to. Nobody cares enough to pay the large amounts of money to program security to the extent that it needs to be programmed. Why would I trust somebody to put something in my head? You know, this is really what it comes down to is is the capitalist imperative of make the thing, sell it for the most, make it for the least. And when you're talking about ethics, I mean, all of these things involve ethics. Everything, you know, whether it's energy production or finance or anything being dealt with through the Internet as an interface all of these things have ethics attached. Why would the ethics suddenly appear if we had brain computer interfaces? And this is the part where I just want to shake these guys. As fascinating as I find it, I wouldn't trust any of them, any of the unicorn overlords to put something in my head. I mean, I just think about how unusable most websites are without an ad blocker. That is true. The last thing I need are like my Instagram ads just showing up in my eyeballs because (laughs) that would be too frustrating. That's right. That's a good point. That's a good point. Well, it makes me think too. I think we very often in cyberpunk see these things existing inside, as you've said, a dystopian or really totalitarian, you know, government And it makes me wonder where the story possibilities are for thinking of it in a different social shift. Are these things perhaps even more likely to emerge and to be widely adopted only after a societal change away from our current horrific capitalist paradigm? Like, where did those things... And and that's, that's what fiction gets to do. It gets to explore one avenue or the other. But it does feel like a lot of the currently existing stuff leans into the totalitarian side as opposed to leaning into the but what if not side of possibilities well exactly and you know look humans gonna human right we're 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 hierarchical animals we're social animals we are easily manipulated animals (laughs) and um i think that that while we can come up with better forms of government than exist right now, we still have to accept the fact that until we can change ourselves as humans, we're gonna have these kinds of societies. Cyberpunk traditionally takes the darkest turn because that's also the most dramatic, the most conflict-filled, the most interesting. But I do want to continue pursuing, and 
honestly, my books take a big shift because I want, in the three-act structure, you get climaxes, climaxes, you know, sorry, you get conflict, 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 climax, ding a boom, you're done. You don't really address what it means to have won. And I don't exactly do the Lord of the Rings 18 ending version of, (laughs) (laughs) but I do, I do take a few minutes past, you know, the big bad being gone to explore what are these things that they're going to do now? What do they do now that the big bad is gone? And we have to address those questions. What are the things we really want to accomplish? as a society, instead of just going along and getting along, what do we want to accomplish? What are our goals? If we know what our goals are, we can start building a way to get there. But if your goal is just to kick ass, you know, be the stranger who walks into town, kicks some ass and then leaves, that gets nothing done in the big picture. So I want to, I want to know, like you've just asked, you know, so what, where, if we get to change our structures, where does that take us? Where, what can we imagine happening? Um, I was kind of stuck because I'd put myself in a certain kind of box with the first book and then had my epiphany. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's not always the way. (laughs) Damn it. Um, But uh, I, I do want to know, I I'd want to explore this further in, in my next work. What are our opportunities? What could we lead people to if they weren't afraid? Because fear is our biggest problem. Fear is what makes people not want to accept that change is happening. They can't stop it. It's going to happen anyway. But they do bad things when they're afraid. So how do we stop people from being afraid and instead go, okay, hmm, here's where it's going. How should we adapt best? To me, that's the constructive way of of looking at moving through a future. That is a fantastically summarized point. Um, We are at this point coming up on our hour, so I want to make sure we we go back. And if there's anything that you desperately want to hit before we wrap up to make sure we loop back to it. We we have a question on here about using technology with non-humans and perhaps the ethics that come in with that i mean you i I am curious if we are in a different point since you were talking about where we are currently with you know brain connection implants and all that is that a how much of that is being done say with animals i was just doing some reading not too long ago about the attempts to generate communication with say dolphins and monkeys and gorillas especially from the 50s all the way through the 80s that was you know really big then and then basically somebody put out a paper in in the early 90s just like this is actually impossible we're all fooling ourselves and then everyone's like yeah i think you're right and it just at least at that point that those studies kind of died or at least withered to some degree. And I'm wondering, has that come back at all? Because I know, you know, there was a lot of intentions with both, you know, some of the stuff with dolphins is just wild to read. Uh, Interestingly, like there's a, you can buy this right now. There is um, 
a dog. Oh, I've seen that. Yes, where they hit the things and 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 like you know this is for food and this is for out and this is for I'm tired and this is for I want pets and this is and they and they make it's like it's like Kanzai Kanzai the um uh the great ape where uh she had Coco no but there's Coco and there was another then there was the daughter I think it was okay anyway one of the great great apes where they had the board and the board was had um symbols for words so if if (laughs) if she wanted pizza she hit tomato cheese bread and (laughs) she knew what those were that's that's the part that really blows my mind is she had she was had almost a german concept of language it was all complex uh constructed concepts and could communicate extremely well with emotion could say they're happy and sad and explain why and uh, my favorite one was um, when the uh, gorilla was told that Mr. Rogers had died. And Mr. Rogers was a great favorite, not just on television, but had come and visited and gotten into uh, the, the living situation with the ape. And, uh, and the ape was just bereft. Knew exactly who, who they were talking about. Knew what death was. Knew they would never see them again. Oh, I mean, this is the stuff where you're like, come on. I do a lot of of empathy work, um, looking at storytelling as an empathy engine and what creates empathy. And one of the things you learn when you learn about the neuroscience of empathy, because I've written a lot of non uh, nonfiction, like academic papers on this. Uh, the neuroscience of empathy is fascinating because it's not human. It's not even just mammalian. It there are various ways that emulation and imagining yourself in the shoes of another, you know, birds do it. I mean, certainly higher birds like uh, corvids and, and parrots. Um, you'd be amazed how many animals actually have empathy for not just their kin, which is what it's designed to do, but for others in their species and often cross species. And that's where you start looking at a lot of the language stuff with the dolphins and, and maybe they were just on the wrong track. Right. I think the, from what I understand from the reading I was doing, a lot of what's considered to be the flaw was, can we teach them to communicate the way humans do in human language and like, and sort of force that. And, and the animals weren't interested in that at all. <laughs> and instead they were, you know, interested in maybe trying to communicate their own way. And though, that reminds me of a thing I saw just the other day. Of like, we're seeing a lot now these videos where some animal will like go to humans and be like, "You like, like my child is stuck here or something like that." That it, like they know we can't solve this problem, but maybe a human can, and maybe we'll get lucky and we'll find a nice human. I think I saw that same thing, which is like these species that have evolved to be like not necessarily automatically afraid of the apex predator, but <laughs> I'm going to go to that apex predator because they seem to have things figured out and I'm going to choose to trust them, I guess. And maybe they can help get my baby out of this storm gutter. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Absolutely. It, it's really interesting because I think that, that our use of 
technology. I think we're we're finally coming around. We're trying different ways into understanding the other, and let's say non-human animals are definitely the other for us. Um, we're getting better as the years go on, understanding like it's not about anthropomorphizing them. Then there was the big shift away, like animals are nothing like us. Well, actually, they're way more like us than we realize. But that doesn't mean that their language ability is like ours. And that's the big difference. But in terms of caring for their young, especially if we're talking about mammals, how they work with kin, kin altruism, kin relationships, um, cross species work, they're surprisingly like us. It's, you know, and, and honestly, let's just look at cats for a moment. They trained us. We did not train, train them. They domesticated us. <laughs> and in fact, there's a new paper out that says, Cats of all the domesticated animals are probably the least domesticated. That in fact, they trained us, we didn't train them. Where where dogs adapted to us, we adapted to cats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one thing I, I want to make sure we ask before we wrap up, because I think it's a good question for our listeners, especially with this kind of work, because it is so near future and it is grounded in current modern technology. If a writer wants to work on this sort of stuff, where would you point them to begin with research? And I know in this case, it might not be, you know, books. It might be more like what journals are good or what websites are good to follow if they want to be up on the kinds of technology that might lead them to create really cool stories set in a near alternate future. So all of my research started because I'm a brain geek. I've been a brain geek since I was a kid. I went to a summer school class taught by a very young Robert Sapolsky. He was a baby in grad school, illegally moonlighting at the New School for Social Research in New York. Um, And he was teaching a class on human behavioral biology. And that just made me go, wow, the brain is so amazing. And so I followed brain technology my whole life. Because I'm dyslexic, dyscalculic, dysgraphic, I couldn't go into science because the numbers, anything, by the time you hit calculus and it's symbols, it's literally like, woo. Um, so I, I just fell in love with reading about psychology and human behavior. And that's what led me originally to these books. So the question becomes what happens when brain technologies get so small, they're actually inside our bodies, inside our heads. How do we change when technology is changing us? So I started researching, uh, reading journals, reading, you know, you can read PopSci, you can read, if I could pick up my giant iMac, I would show you my library in a closet over there. Um, That's nothing but books on technology, neuroscience, empathy, you name it. I mean, I just, I've I've been reading for years. I started researching this stuff in 2006. My first book was published in 2015. So I take this stuff very seriously. And I consider myself an expert in a lot of this stuff because I've done the hard work. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be as crazy as me. This show is all about people being that crazy. Okay, well, I like I want to know answers, right? I want answers, or at least I want a really good roadmap. And uh, I, I just everything. I'm watching 
listening to podcasts, watching YouTube. Um, you know, I'm following guys like Robert Sapolsky and, you know, whoever, whoever my heroes are in these areas, you know, I would follow Donald Hoffman in, in, you know, um, uh, vision data. I would follow, I name the area of, of te those technologies. And I would, would jump down those, those rabbit holes. Um, this is, this is serious stuff. Now there are plenty of cyberpunk guys who don't do any of this. They have all <laughs> the confidence in the world that they can tell a story about this and make it up and great. I'm not that person. And I want to do a really good job. And in fact, I know I did a good job because there's a thing called Neuralink now. So <laughs> <laughs> this is how I, how I, I go, Oh, Hey, I did a good job with that. So I'm, I'm all about the research. I'm all about the research. Uh, there are plenty of people who would disagree with me and, and they do wonderful fiction, but that's, that's me. Well, our listeners tend to be uber geeks who like to go deep into things. So it sounds like the advice is figure out what kind of geekery you want to go into and dive deep, find the experts, follow them. Yep. That's exactly it. Awesome. I love that you sort of get, you've gotten proof of concept of your work in a way that a lot of spec fic writers don't get because. <laughs> well, the funniest one is, um, and, and I truly swear to God, I wrote this, I would have written these scenes like in 2010 because I finished the book about 2012, sold it 2014, came out 2015. 2010, I was writing about, uh, my protagonist pretends to be an American entrepreneur who gets in trouble with the Russians and the Russian oligarchs and has to run for president of the United States. And it's a whole, yeah. I have so much of that in my books that at a certain point, that's not research. That's just like, I honestly believe like, you know, if you plug into the ether, stuff comes. Um, I've got a lot of that. And and I have a lot of friends who are like, how did, how did you know? It's like, I don't know. That, that just came out of my fingers. Like, you know, woo. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so, so yes, there's a combination of, I did the, I did the research and look what happened. And then there's the, you know, um, I, I say it here, it comes out there and, uh, it, it's that there's been a lot of that. It's been kind of wacky. That's amazing. <laughs> So typically, as we end an episode with a guest star, we do a thing where we invite the guest star to add into the world building of the world we've been creating all this time over the course of this podcast. But the world we've been creating is a more traditional fantasy world. So I'm curious what sort of thing you might add to that that best fits you and your milieu. I'll tell you, one of the things I had the most fun with in my books was so one of my main characters ruth speaks yiddish and one of the gags through the books is how she has to you know like has to translate and what she's saying and then of course when they become digital entities the peters and toms don't have to you know they they can translate instantly but they still don't understand what she's saying because yiddish is such a a um uh, idiomatic language you know it's it's giving you a picture of an idea the phraseology is is very um metaphorical 
And so they're still not sure what she's saying, even though they have a universal translator. I would love a universal translator that gets all the idiomatic and metaphorical language and can always tell you exactly what somebody's thinking and saying when in whatever language it is at all times. That's amazing. I love it. I love it. That that gives not just, you know, literal but but meaningful translation in terms of that's awesome. Fantastic. Well, PJ, it has been absolutely delightful having you on. This has been a mind-expanding uh, conversation for me, certainly. It's it's not a realm I operate in, but it's it's a lot of fun to think about. And I hope it, I'm sure it has been for our listeners as well. Maybe some of them are now planning big, bright, beautiful tomorrows with uh, new technology for their stories. I hope so. I hope so. Don't be afraid of it, really. Just, just <laughs> jump right in. And it's been wonderful talking to you guys. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on July 21st, and expanding on some of the thoughts in this episode, we're going to dive in on the various punks and darks and cores that make up fantasy subgenres. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the world you're making and help us all build until it hurts.